Talk. I am Rabbi Marcy Bellows, and with me is Rabbi Emma Gottlieb. Season two. Let's go. So excited to be back here with you, though, Marce. It's so good to see your face and hear your voice, even though we talk all the time. This is like special, sacred podcasting time. Yes, the high holy days of 5781 are over, and we have survived them. And here we are. Here we are. So I was just actually thinking about this earlier today. Like we ended season one in March, maybe a week or two before South Africa locked down for six weeks and the world went crazy and started burning and all the things have happened since then. And we didn't podcast any of it, although we did have some live Facebook episodes when we were trying to entertain the world in lockdown. And uh, now we're ready for season two. So how are you other than having survived? Doing okay, doing all right. It has been a really long, how many months? Uh, seven, eight months um, mm. since then. Yeah, we did our Facebook Live episodes where we talked with some of our friends and colleagues and we talked about education during COVID and we talked about allyship. But um, now, you know, we have had this opportunity to experience High Holy Days during COVID where we had to relearn everything. And I'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit more in a bit. Mm-hmm. But doing all right. How about you? I'm also doing all right. It was, you know, there were some rough patches along the way, some uh, dark, some dark times, and also some real taking stock, feeling gratitude for what I have times. And uh, I'm so, so, so proud of my clergy team and my staff team and what we did over the holidays. And I also am praying every day that we never have to do it again. And yeah, now it's, it's Cheshvan and I'm catching my breath. Summer's coming in Cape Town. So the sun is out and the world is beautiful right now. And uh, just hoping it stays that way. That's awesome. We yeah. can feel winter coming in Connecticut. <laughs> so it's yeah. a reminder that we're in two different hemispheres. I know we are. It's, it's always like so funny to me that as I'm like pulling out my my seasonal wardrobe for whatever season is coming, I'm also seeing all of my family and friends switching over in the opposite direction on all my FaceTime and Zoom calls. You're all getting into your warm sweaters and your boots yeah. and your fall clothes. And I'm like in my t-shirt and sandals and trying to psych myself up to get a pedicure and not be afraid of people breathing on my feet. Seasons change. Seasons change. (laughs) It's true. We really need to just sing more on the podcast. I I think season two, there will be more singing. There will. Season two, once more with feeling. Yeah. With feeling. (laughs) Yeah. Season two, we've we've got some awesome rabbis that we're planning to talk to. Looking forward 
to the lineup that we have. I'm not going to give it away just yet, but uh, I think it's looking pretty good. And mostly we're going to stick with what's working, what we loved about season one, but we're going to make a few tiny little changes. We're going to do what are we thinking about a little bit differently. We'll we'll just do it and the listeners will will hear how it is. But that'll be a little different. We're also uh, recording in Zoom in case we decide to throw these up on the internet. Uh, so that if people want to access us on the YouTube and see your beautiful, bright red, politically correct lipstick and my funky <laughs> aviator glasses you and our contrasting stripes. So cool. That's true. She's wearing vertical stripes and I'm wearing horizontal stripes. And together we are checkered. I don't even know. But we didn't plan it. It just happened that it way. It just happened. And they do match. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, should we jump in? Should we do this? Yeah. Why don't you tell, tell us what you're thinking about? What am I thinking about? So I'm thinking back to when I was in rabbinical school, maybe my third or fourth year. We used to go to my friend David's house every week to watch Lost. There was a group of us, all HUC students, maybe one or two friends we had picked up along the way. And this was back before you could stream television on Netflix, and it possibly was even before DVRs were standard. And we had all these rules about how no one could talk during the show, and we were very strict about it. Anyway, it was the regular night of the week that we socialized. We had dinner together, and we stayed and talked and drank and avoided our homework. I have lots of good memories of that time, but I also have this specific powerful memory about a conversation that I had with one person in the group one night who was beginning to like lean away from reform Judaism for a number of reasons, both personal and spiritual. And in our conversation, he said something about how the ship was sinking. I think we were talking about the poor state of Jewish education in a lot of reform synagogues and disagreeing about the state of the movement and whether or not it could be course corrected. And this friend, he ended up leaving HUC that year or maybe the year after. He found a better fit for himself at the conservative rabbinical school in LA. But this was before he had jumped ship, although it was pretty clear he was going to. The ship is sinking, is what he said. Now, I'm diehard reform, born and raised. My dad's a reform rabbi. I spent most of my youth being the poster child for NIFTY, which is the reform youth movement for the movement summer camps. In the congregational world, I went from Hebrew school to youth group board. I was president and then I was on regional board. I was a song leader. In the camping world, I went from camper to counselor to song leader to director of education. And of course, there I was at HUC. So I'd spent really most of my life living and breathing and bleeding reform Judaism year round. So when he said the ship is sinking, it stung. That was my ship he was talking about, which is why I said, with all the gusto and passion and idealism and naivete of a 20-something rabbinical student who has not yet been tried and tested by the rabbinate or by grief or by the economic crash of 2008 or by 2020 for that matter, that is why I said to him, well, then I guess I'm going to have to go down with the ship because I'm not about to abandon them. This is when they need leadership the most, I said. 
And aren't we the ones who are supposed to be writing the ship? Isn't that what we're doing here in rabbinical school? Except that for some of us, it wasn't. We didn't all end up as rabbis in the reform movement. Actually, if I think about it, the makeup of the group that night, we didn't even all end up becoming rabbis. I don't remember how the rest of the conversation went, how it started, how it ended, just that one exchange. But that part of the conversation stayed with me. It haunted me. Was the ship sinking? Was I committing myself to a lost cause? Was it too late? Were all the brilliant students in my class going to jump ship and join other movements or start other movements? Was congregational Judaism dying? Was everything I loved about Judaism about to be written into a chapter of history? It kept me awake for many nights, for many years. And while I never once considered jumping ship, there were definitely low points when I wondered if I should have. And also moments of exceptional joy and affirmation when I've been so proud to say that I didn't. I've seen our movement start to correct a lot of things I was concerned about back then. It's not perfect. It still struggles. Sometimes I wonder if it will eventually sink, but I don't worry about whether or not I'm going down with the ship. I teach and I build and I lead and I double down on what I believe in and it's good, it's enough. And I didn't think about that conversation for a long time, for years, but lately it's been coming back to me, gnawing at the edges of my consciousness, floating in and out of dreams the ship is sinking. And this time, the ship is America, which is not my country. But it's a country I spent a formative decade in, a country filled with people I love and memories I cherish, a country where the brand of Judaism I've spent my whole life living and loving and leading is rooted. And yet, it's not my ship. If it goes down, I'll be watching from a safe distance. But I can't stop thinking about the choices that all of my loved ones in America are making right now. I have begged family members to leave before the election in case there's violence afterward, and I know they won't. And I know that not everyone can leave and that not everyone has the choice or the privilege to choose. And I know that if everyone who shares my values flees for the border, the ship will sink. I want the people I love to be safe. But I know that for most of them, America is their ship and they need to stay and fight for it. And they need to write it and they need to turn it around. And I'm afraid for them and I believe in them. And I pray that in another decade, I'll look back and this will be one more story, one more disaster averted. I cannot imagine what it feels like to be in America right now. I can only say that we on distant shores are holding our breath, watching, waiting, hoping. What happens next will change the world one way or another. As I'm recording this, I don't know what the world will look like by the time you are listening to it. But I know that this too shall pass. Wow. Thank you. Love you. I love you. You go. What are you thinking about, Mars? So I'm thinking about how a few months ago, 
My four-year-old son came home from preschool singing a song that I hadn't heard for years. It's one of those call and repeat songs, so all of you at home can feel free to sing along with me. We're going on a bear hunt. We're going to catch a big one. What a beautiful day. We're not scared. Uh-oh, grass, long wavy grass. We can't go over it. We can't go under it. We've got to go through it. Swishy, swashy, swishy, swashy, swishy, swashy. The song continues as the children in the story meet one mildly frightening roadblock after another. A deep, cold river, thick, oozy mud, uh-oh, a dark, creepy cave, and they even find the bear. And these are definitely spooky for kids and maybe even some adults. And we're reminded throughout, we're not scared. And plus, maybe most importantly, we can't go over it. We can't go under it. We gotta go through it. It's an American folk song for children that was adapted into a book in 1989 by Michael Rosen. And yet, it really hit me right in my kishkis when my son sang it to me this summer while my mother was declining in hospice. The words rang so true. And as deep as that deep, cold river in the song. It's a song presumably about an adventure, but what a safe way to learn that there are moments in our lives which might be unexpected and maybe even a little scary. And try as we might want to get around them, we sure ain't avoiding them. We have to go through them. Can we imagine a more profound message to start learning as a toddler? As adults, this is still a really tough message to fully embrace. This past year has forced all of us, every single one of us, to wrestle with loss, frustration, sadness, loneliness, and isolation. We have stayed away from close relatives and friends for long periods of time. And we have all been isolated in our homes for various times, some even longer due to being high risk. And we've learned new behaviors and stopped old ones. Ever since this pandemic began more than seven, eight months ago, our world has changed in so many ways. And I really hope that we've all allowed ourselves the time and the space to feel sad or angry about it. And I'm sure there have been so many moments of joy sprinkled throughout, but have you let yourself cry or mourn? the losses that you've experienced or feel angry about events you've missed out on. We all feel loss because of the very real fear of illness or of the legitimate concern of getting or passing along coronavirus. We never would have guessed that there were to be times when going grocery shopping would feel like an actual life or death choice. And due to these concerns, there have been so many heartbreaking consequences. 
Some of us have actually experienced the cruelty of having a loved one die, alone, in a hospital, since no one was allowed by their side. And personally, as my mother lay dying of pancreatic cancer in the hospital, my three siblings and I were told that only one of us could visit her for a brief 20 minutes every other day. And thank goodness we were counseled by a kind social worker to bring her home to die in peace. And if your family experienced a life cycle event, one of joy or sorrow, the added pressure of whether to hold it in person or how many people to include was often gut-wrenching, as you rightly struggled to keep everyone safe. Funerals and shivas, which should be times filled with the comfort of friends and family, were more often quiet and empty and lonely. Happy events we may have been planning for a long time may have had to be canceled or postponed until a time when it would be safe to, God willing, have a large group of guests to celebrate with. And I don't mean to just list all the ways that we're feeling depressed or frustrated. Instead, my intention is just to give all of us permission to feel our feelings. Many of us push our negative feelings away for so long we don't even realize we have them anymore. As Dr. Henry Maudsley, a 19th century British psychiatrist, said, a sorrow that has no vent in tears makes other organs weep. So it's critical that we give ourselves spaces and times to give our souls time to feel their various feelings. And there's no shame in admitting to depression or anxiety or brokenness at this time or at any time, for that matter. And those of us who struggle with depression or anxiety in a good year may find our illnesses exacerbated by current events. And others who've never struggled with mental illness may be surprised to find themselves feeling symptoms of depression. In our culture, we aren't taught how to be sad very well. We're impatient with grief, and grief is a good word for what so many of us are feeling, for all the different kinds of losses since the pandemic began. A book entitled Death and Grief, A Guide for Clergy, states, Shortly after a funeral, for instance, mourners are expected to be back to normal. Grief is something to be overcome rather than experienced. The result of these kinds of messages is to encourage the repression of the griever's thoughts and feelings, Refusing to allow tears, suffering in silence, and being strong are all thought to be admirable behaviors. It's now been three months since my mom died. And when I think about it, I don't really have a good role model for how to mourn. And it's been really important to me that when people ask me how I'm doing, that I fight cultural pressure to say I'm fine. And instead, I try to be really honest. I don't say that I'm fine, and instead, I'm actually quite sad, and that it's okay to admit that. It's healthy to allow the sadness out. It's not weak. It's not dysfunctional. It's not going to destroy us. Rather, it strengthens us for later experiences. 
I wonder what we'd accomplish or experience if we all took all that energy that we use to push away sadness or anger and instead used it elsewhere. The sweet irony, by the way, of the bear hunt song is that during this time of COVID-19, some families throughout America have actually started putting teddy bears in their front windows so that other families can go on walks or travel in their cars to go on socially distant real life teddy bear hunts just so that this time can be a little less scary for their little ones. Because we can't go over it. And we can't go under it. And we just have to go through it. And you know what? We have no choice but to go through it together. So I hope we will go through it. And we'll do it together. That was beautiful, Mars. And uh, I mean, I know I've said this to you before, but not in the presence of our listeners. I'm really sorry for your loss. Thank you. And it really sucks. And I love you. Thank you. I love you too. So basically, we're not thinking about anything serious or heavy or life altering. No, it's been like a really chill year, actually. Totally chill. Yeah. It was a beach summer. Yeah. Yeah. On the yacht, margaritas. (laughs) I just want everyone to know that you're drinking. I have a giant black mug that says Big Daddy on it. So if you're not watching us on YouTube, you should be because then you too could be seeing Marcy's big daddy mug. I know. Often I'm using my Wonder Woman mug, but today it's the big daddy mug. Big daddy. (laughs) It's true. It's amazing. So what are you excited about for season two, Marcy? What should our listeners be looking forward to? I think we're going to be diving deeper into some of the real issues that are bubbling up in our times right now. Things we didn't necessarily expect over the last year or so, but that 2019 and 2020, especially throughout the election, but really throughout the world have come up like Black Lives Matter, the continued presence and fight of LGBTQ issues, really civil rights in general. And so I know we have been looking forward to inviting people that represent and fight for different marginalized groups and hearing their voices and letting them rise to the fore. It has been really exciting for me. What about you? What are you excited about? Yeah, I am also excited about those conversations and I'm really looking forward. I think we're sort of shifting away from women rabbi specific conversations and into more, yeah, contemporary conversations through the eyes of today's women rabbis. Um, And I'm also really excited that we are continuing our commitment to spotlight rabbis of all different kinds from all different movements in and out of congregations, different ages and rabbis who maybe don't get seen or heard as often as they should uh, outside their own communities. And 
Um, that's really important to me and one of the sort of founding values of this podcast. And I'm, I'm really excited when I look at the list of people that we're hoping to talk to this season. I'm really, really excited about it. That is very cool. Because we have so many different ages already lined up. We love talking to emerging rabbinical students, for instance, people who might be going into the rabbinate for totally different reasons than even we did, and or that people who are nearing retirement or in retirement did. We have many generations of women rabbis. Thank God we have many generations of women rabbis to talk to. That's such a blessing. And to be able to hear from these different generations is really important. As well as voices from all over the world and uh, different international perspectives. And also over the past six or seven months, Judaism, or at least non-Orthodox Judaism, is changing at an insanely rapid pace. And to be in dialogue with other rabbis while that's happening, to try to help document this period also feels really important. And I hope will be one of the things that we will look back on this season and be proud of. I think it might be neat if you and I spend some time today reflecting on our own experiences a little more deeply with the High Holy Days, because that was one of the ways that I think we all had to respond in very real time. Also, since we last podcasted and had to reinvent our job descriptions in so many ways, and and unless congregants or people involved in Judaism were working behind the scenes with their rabbis, they may have no idea the kind of work that clergy and executive directors and educators um, and tech teams at congregations were working their tachases off over the last six months at least. I mean, I know beginning in February, clergy at the very least have been panicking about what were we going to do about high holidays way before I think the rest of the world caught on and saw that we were going to have to shut congregations down. We began to see wait a minute, we're not going to be able to do high holidays as usual and had to, you know, begin anticipating a response. So how were your high holidays? You know, it's actually, it's really difficult for me to separate the high holidays out from what led up to them because so much of what, so much of what we were able to do over the high holidays, we were only able to do because we spent March or April through August, learning how to do and building on and perfecting um, again at this like insane pace. I mean, we podcasted in March. The last episode we did was with uh, Denise and I was sitting in Rabbi Malcolm's office in the empty shul because we had already stopped letting people into shul. And I had like my bottle of hand sanitizer with me and I was freaking out and we barely talked about it because we didn't even know, you know, and then a week or two later, I was working with my team to figure out how to take our entire shul online because everything just stopped and everything was shut down and not being able to offer Judaism to our congregation was not a possibility. And 
you know, we had to figure out in a week how to, how to do that, you know, and it's kind of crazy to look back at it now and, and sort of track the trial and error that went in to it. We had to learn all these different technologies or teach each other, you know, some of us knew Zoom, some of us didn't, some of us knew Facebook, some of us didn't, you know, we all had to be on this curve. And at the same time, we're having conversations with other rabbis all over the world and cantors and educators and executive directors who are all doing the same thing, you know, and in weeks we had, you know, Zoom shul and we had our services online and we had our classes online. We had our conversion program online. We were meeting people for pastoral care online. You know, we were activating our volunteers who were, once they were allowed out of their own homes, taking care of people who still couldn't leave their homes. And all of that was the foundation upon which we built the high holidays. Because for our community, we made the decision as we started to look to the high holidays, not to recreate the wheel again, but to build on what we were doing in all of those months leading up to the high holidays that was, that was working. I mean, our community was showing up for our online Shabbat services in um, strong numbers. We were getting really good feedback. People from other parts of the city and other parts of the country and other parts of the world were joining us. You know, by August, we really felt like we knew what we were doing. We had a solid handle on it. And we decided we just wanted to keep doing what we were doing, but kind of do it on steroids, like the the high holiday version of our Shabbat services, but not to to have it look or feel different than our Shabbat services. It was just a, a bigger version, you know, and then we put, you know, months of work into, into preparing that and doing it and bringing all the pieces together, all the recordings. We had a lot of digital content, pre-recorded, mostly music, things that we couldn't sing in Zoom that we knew were important to have multiple voices and harmonies, trying to figure out the balance of, you know, music that people would want to hear that was familiar and comforting. And also being able to say, oh, look, we can showcase music that we couldn't showcase in the shul because we can access other people's digital content and bring in, you know, cantors from other parts of the world and their voices. And, you know, we, for one of Inu Malkano, we had Barbara Streisand and we wouldn't, we would never do that in the shul, but it was amazing online. And so that, that kind of balance of figuring it out and then executing it and we did it and it was awesome and it was hard and it was sad and, devastating and I missed being on the Bima. I missed the the energy that I feel coming, you know, in waves off of the community. I missed facing the ark and and having that private spiritual time with with the open ark that I think really only rabbis and service leaders know what that's like to be your back to the community and your face to the open ark on Yom Kippur and it's it's like I'm choking up thinking about it because I missed it so much and what we did was amazing and it took time to figure out how to hold both of those pieces like the sadness and the and the pride but I think that's 
what I'm coming away with is sort of a handful of each and knowing that it was historic and something we'll be talking about for the rest of our lives. And like, again, just hoping we never have to do it again, but also we know how, and if we had to, we could, that's how it was. How was yours? Tell me about it. Mine was complicated for me personally because of the loss of my mother at the end of July. So I that it's all kind of mixed up together for me in terms of the congregation. We we've live streamed our services from a camera in the congregation for years. But Zoom was new to us with the start of COVID that we were we started zooming services on our individual computers in March. So the question was, how are we going to put together the tech well for high holidays? And luckily, we have really, really talented people in our congregation who do all this stuff for their own, you know, in their own daily lives. So we have incredible sound engineers and we have incredible IT people and tech people and computer people. And so they all got together and said, hey, we'll help, you know, and they had all of this equipment that they had no problem just bringing in and not necessarily donating, but saying, yeah, you can use it for as long as you need, whatever, you know, and donating hours and hours of their time and our incredible cantor Belinda um, in my absence because I was home for weeks and weeks um, being with my mother and my family really spearheaded the whole effort and coordinated everything doing all the research with other rabbis and cantors online of you know what's going to be the best program and what's going to be the best camera to get or the best system to to bring all of the technology together we wound up because as as many people know singing became a deadly weapon and that was a really tough thing because what many most congregations I, I would say singing is one of the best parts of the high holidays the music the choral pieces the cantorial pieces like that's what gets your heart you know I've probably said this before but my mom was a protege of Max Janowski's and so for me, the Max, the the Janowski pieces are some of the most precious to me. Uh, to not hear the the big Avinu Malkenu or you know Tavo Lefanecha and some of these these big pieces was going to be really tragic. And for our choir too, there are certain pieces. Alana Yagoda's Ose Shalom. We do a version of it slowed down, and that our accompanist did a gorgeous arrangement of that I believe Alana's aware of and it's just so gorgeous and our congregation loves it we love Taubman's Hashkivenu and we love you know we do Who by Fire Who by Water by Leonard Cohen and you know there's some key pieces of course Kol Nidre that we can't imagine High Holy Days without so our choir set out to record one individual track at a time which people who don't know Zoom may not realize that when you see one of these incredible recordings on Facebook, where there's all the little boxes singing together or all the instruments playing together, that's not happening. They're not playing in unison. Every single box had to record separately and it's magic. (laughs) 
sound engineering magic to put it all together. And that's what we had. We had every single choir member and accompanist and musician record separately. And then we had wonderful sound engineers put it together. It was hours and hours and hours of work. So they had about eight pieces that they did. And then the cantor and I and the accompanist were live in the sanctuary for the High Holy Days. And we rolled in a few of these choral pieces eventually. And we had a whole tech team in the sanctuary as well. And so there were about eight of us in the sanctuary, socially distanced by quite a bit. And we were able to respond spontaneously. I had an iPad on my lectern and I was monitoring the chat box and and able to respond, you know, and all of a sudden Erev Rosh Hashanah were getting, you know, in the chat box, oh my God, RBG passed away. And, you know, and I had to respond to that. That was crazy and sad and tragic. And, and, you know, being able to respond in live time and real time to that was part of why we wanted to do them live and not pre-record services. And just, we wanted, you know, we knew our community. We were, we're a smaller community, you know, we're around 200 families. And so pre-recording felt unnecessarily artificial for us, though for, I know for plenty of congregations, pre-recording was right for them. For us, it, it was not the right choice. And in the end, what was hundreds of hours of work of preparation and practice and running things and timing things all paid off and came together, but it was exhausting. And I know even now into Cheshvan, we're still running on fumes. And I know we still are trying to catch up with energy, but it was worth it. And like you, I pray that we don't have to do it again. It's looking increasingly likely that we might, but I hope we don't have to because we want to be together. We want to be together next year. I'm not, I'm not even ready to like open myself to that. I need a few more months, I think. Then we shall not talk about it. No. (laughs) Don't, don't, don't even talk about it. We won't even talk about it. Okay. Hush, hush now. So two questions I'm sort of reflecting as I'm listening to you talk. So what is one new skill that you had to acquire for this high holiday COVID Jewish era? And... What was the, what was one creative thing that you guys did? You all were trying to strike the term you guys from our staff vocabulary. Yeah, and <laughs> um, surprisingly, I, as the one woman rabbi on our staff, is the one who struggles with it the most. What is one creative thing that you all did that you want to tell our listeners about? Ooh, and then you get to answer too, Yeah. Yes, please. Okay. All right. So, wait, the first question was? New skill. New skill. Okay. That reminds me of um, the ballroom movie, the Baz Luhrmann, the first one in the Red Curtain series. Um, New steps, new steps. Okay. Um, So the new skill. Yeah. Everybody come with me there. Nobody came with me there. Failing. I'm failing the the pop culture pop references culture today. Okay. Um, oh, Strictly Ballroom is the movie. Um, oh, yelling I think I did me. see that. Yeah. New steps. Um, okay. So this isn't. It isn't. This isn't strictly a, a new skill, but I had to. I had to multitask in a way I never have had to before, for High Holy Days. And I, you know, you always have to 
multitask and pay attention to so many different things on high holy days. You know, you're reading the energy in the room, you're reading your cue sheet, you're keeping an eye on, you know, the communication between you and the cantor and the accompanist and, you know, what's going on over here with the gabi or, you know, whoever is running, you know, the honors and stuff like that. And maybe, you know, rest of your clergy team and you're, you're keeping track of so many different things going on at once. But this year there was also all the technology and making sure everything was coordinated and you weren't being Zoom bombed and you weren't being, I don't know, there were just, there were that many more things that we were keeping track of. And so I was watching also the chat box and I was making sure that there weren't glitches happening. And my husband, Seth, was watching our our Zoom room and letting people in and out and making sure nobody questionable was coming in. And so he was our Zoom moderator and a- answering questions that people might have had about things. And um, I was just, there were there were that many more things I was keeping track of and trying to look like I was totally, you know, in charge of what was happening and focused and present. And it was, um, that was what was really exhausting, was to have my brain in 10 places, but look like I was fully present. And so it was, energy was applied differently this year. It wasn't sending out energy to the people who were present. It was weird that it wasn't people absorbing my energy. It was like the technology absorbing my energy. And that was very weird. So that was a new skill that I, I couldn't anticipate until it was happening. Like I couldn't practice yeah. that. No. Do, you, do you want to answer that one too while we're at? Yeah, I, I really resonate with that. And I, I did say to a lot of people afterwards, it's exhausting every year, but this year it was a different kind of exhausting. Right. And definitely was doing all that same multitasking that you're talking about. In addition, we didn't have like a digital production team. I, I essentially became our digital production team with the help of one of our young adults in the community and had to do a lot of quick learning on iMovie and GarageBand and, you know, video editing in a way that I had never had to do before. And I'm far from expert, but I am proudly proficient. (laughs) We ended up with some really great digital media that I'm really proud of, but it was quite a learning curve. And then yes, all the multitasking in the moment, we have a, we sort of share a lot of the Zoom duties, but um, I'm the fastest multitasker on our team. So I end up being the one who's singing Chatzikadosh and letting people in from the waiting room and subtly sending a message to our tech person to say, is this happening? What's going on? And muting people and unmuting people and <laughs> screen sharing and <laughs> spotlighting and all the stuff, you know? So yeah. So those, those are the skills. Those are the skills that they did not teach us in rabbinical school because who knew that this was what we were going to need. So digital editing was the, the newest, the newest of the skills. And then what about the creative stuff? Uh, What was creative for us isn't necessarily creative for other congregations. But what was fun was we took advantage of the fact that it was a new year and we could do something different. And so we did away with the Yom Kippur afternoon service and decided 
to do a contemplative service, which I know many congregations have been doing for a long time. So um, it's actually, I, I have two things. Um, one, and they're both brief. One was, so we did this contemplative service that we called Fetch Comfort and Courage. And because oh. um, we're all about the, it's not quite alliteration, but it's consonants. You know, it's, it's um, you know. Um, I think it falls into alliteration it's a little bit it sounds nice um and so we put together a um a meditative service that wasn't just healing it was really just all about breathing and being present we opened up to have people just kind of fetch and let them let some feelings out about the year and tried to encourage other people to just take it in and just let it let it be let people just let their feelings out which works to some extent. A lot of people want to fix it for other people. <laughs> we sang and chanted and had nigunim and and that was really nice. And we got incredible feedback about that. You know, and there were a few people who said, does that mean we're never doing Jonah again? And we said, not necessarily, but this was really, really beautiful for people. So it's just something a little different. And maybe we can bring aspects of Jonah back. The other neat thing that we did because um, a lot of us felt the need to bring high holy days home for people you know connect the congregation home is we made these high holy day kind of totes you know that where we had swag and we put all these fun goodies in for people like honey and havdala stuff and uh little um jewish black lives matter pins um oh. and you know i printed something from um April Baskin about being Jewish and um, a, a Jew of color on, you know, information on. So like it was all kinds of good stuff in the in the bag and people took them home when they picked up their hard copy Cedarim. And that was great. Oh, and we had uh, a challah fairy who donated pretzel challahs for everybody in the congregation oh as my well. God. So yeah, it was great. Yeah. So what about pretzel you? Challah. Pretzel challah. It was so yummy. Oh, I'm going to be craving that now. It does not <laughs> exist in Cape Town. I didn't know it existed um, in America. <laughs> yeah. Somebody bake me a pretzel challah, please. Okay. So um, the thing that we did that was the most fun, that was the most out of the box for us, that wasn't technical, um, and that we were lucky that we were able to do because our numbers in South Africa um, – by the time the high holidays came, we were, our numbers were down to a really significant level and a lot of normalcy sort of had returned. So we were able to do a drive-through shofar uh, event. And basically our rabbinic team, we, we got permission to use uh, one of the streets near the big stadium, the, the big rugby stadium in town and so it's sort of like an un, uncongested uh, street and we lined up along it at quite a distance from one another each of us with a shofar uh, and we had a few uh, lay shofar blowers as well and um, we were on both sides of the street staggered and the people in our community came and they lined up in their cars there were a ton of cars all the way down the street and then our executive director sort of waved them through and they drove through slowly. And as they drove through, we blew shofar. It was awesome. It was so much fun. It was so great to see people's faces not on a screen through their car windows. It was still bittersweet because we couldn't 
hug people. We couldn't really chat at all, you know, because we're like blowing the shofars. And, but it was it was so great. It was really great. And it was worth the effort. It got us all like in the mood for the high holidays. It really shifted our energy at the end of Elul in a really important way. And I think it's something we're going to keep doing, even when we're able to all safely gather and hug and all the things that we want to be able to do, just because it was cool. So that was great. So I think we um, I think we have to wrap this up. It's been so, so great to be podcasting with you again. And I'm so excited for season two. Me too. Yay. This has been so great. So Marcy. So Emma. Until th- next time. This will be great. It's so nice to be back. Woohoo. Season two. We are out. Thanks to all of you for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Women Rabbis Talk. You can be in touch with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash women rabbis talk and on Instagram at women rabbis podcast or by sending us an email to women rabbis podcast that's women rabbis podcast at gmail.com or you can leave us a voicemail at anchor.f M slash women rabbis podcast. We'd love to hear your thoughts and feedback and don't forget to submit your ask the rabbi questions. Thanks so much to Seth Lindenman and to John Claude Haynes from C Robin tech for their help with sound tech setup. Our music is written by Aviva Chernick and performed by Jaffa Road. Our podcast is hosted on anchor.fm and is available more or less wherever you find other awesome podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe, share, rate, review, and of course, return and join us again soon. And we edit this ourselves. So a big thanks to you, Emma. And thanks to you, Marcy. And with that, we are out. My mom says hello on the phone. Where it happens? In the Zoom where it happens. The Zoom where it happens. The Zoom where it happens. Hi. Amazing.